So Renee, what's your single favorite item? Or let's give you two items oh, thank you. at Washington, D.C.'s National Gallery of Art. Thanks, Len. There's so much at this these galleries. It's literally impossible to have a favorite. But if I had to pick, I would go with the Van Gogh Roses, which is a glorious green and white still life featuring the painter's heavy, thick strokes and his beautiful, bold lines. There's so much paint on this painting. He said when he painted it, this is going to take months to dry. He had painted it right after he was released from the asylum in Saint-Rémy, France, and he was trying to celebrate, I guess, life again after he had been released. And the painting used to be pink flowers, but um, over the years it's faded to white, but it's just stunning. Yeah, fascinating. Great example of Impressionism. 1890, so right, I guess that's towards the end of Impressionism, right at post-Impressionism, but beautiful brushstrokes, very bold, strong use of color. What else do you like over at the National Gallery? Well, I've always been obsessed with Modigliani, and they have... <laughs> you, don't, you don't hear that often, right? <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, I'm, I, I pride myself on being unique, and uh, Modigliani is an incredible painter who died very, very young of tuberculosis. Mm -hmm. And he has a really special like style. You could recognize his paintings in a second anywhere you go because they always have these really long-necked people with kind of melancholy faces. And the National Gallery actually has 12 of his paintings and one okay. sculpture. So it, it's hard to get to see a lot of Modigliani, but at the National Gallery, you can really immerse yourself in that. So both impressionists that you uh, that you like. I guess so. I hate to do that because um, I also love Botticelli and Da Vinci and all the other great painters that are in there. But, you know, if you have to pick, that's what I'm going with. Welcome to another episode of the unofficial guide to the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. With your host, Len Testa. Welcome back to the Unofficial Guide Podcast. It's me, Lynn Testa, the host. With me, as always, Renee Slaru. Renee, say a little bit about yourself, please. Well, I am a uh, guidebook writer who lives in the Washington, D.C. area with my family. I have two daughters, and I love writing guidebooks. I just I wrote this book and also finished recently The 60 Hikes Within 60 Miles of D.C., which is coming out in September. And in mm -hmm. the book, I focused on hotels, so I know about a lot of hotels, where to stay, and that the book really gets very specific about what the different offerings that each hotel has. And I talk a lot about transportation, which is an enigma here in Washington. <laughs> the infamous uh, metro system is somewhat complicated, even to myself, who gets lost and regularly finds herself in Virginia. Um, <laughs> I don't know how that is, but they I see Silver do. Spring is lovely this time of year, sure. <laughs> so that's pretty much me. Also, this is uh, Brian McNichols, another co-author of the book. Brian, how's it going? Hello. Tell us what you did for the book, besides, <laughs> you know, uh, spiritual inspiration. Yeah, and, and I didn't get to do bar research on this one, which was disappointing. Sometimes the job is work, Brian. <laughs> I wrote a lot of the, I don't want to call them smaller attractions, but I'll say non-museum attractions, things like Lincoln Memorial, Washington Monument, those types of things, uh, as well as a lot of the neighborhood descriptions and walking tours for the neighborhoods. And all of our writing can be found at the Unofficial Guide to Washington, D.C., in bookstores everywhere, also available on Amazon.com and also available at theunofficialguides.com. So for today's topic, this is uh, the second of our series of museum tours. Today we're going to go over the National Gallery of Art, one of the United States' finest art museums. I believe the second best museum in the United States after New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art. But tons and tons and tons of fascinating paintings here. 
by every artist you are familiar with and probably thousands that you're not. Brian, why don't you give us some of the basics of the National Gallery of Art? First of all, uh, what's the history behind it? How did we get in the art business as a country anyway? It's kind of down to one man. Andrew Mellon was pretty much the only reason this thing got built. And he was the Secretary of the Treasury from 1921 to 31. He was an art collector himself and independently wealthy through his family, a Pittsburgh man. Go Steelers. If you, and if you're out near Pittsburgh, you will hear the name Mellon everywhere because of his family. But uh, he agreed to donate his art collection and finance the building of the museum just because he thought America should have a great art museum. So uh, the building was actually... Well, the, when I say the building, what I mean is what is the West Wing, uh, mm-hmm. which was the first building. And it was St. Patrick's Day, March 17th, 1941. Unfortunately, it was four years after Mellon himself passed away. The East Wing, which is the newer building that we'll get to a little bit later, did not open until 1978, actually. So there was a, a large gap where the West Wing was the only building there. This is not a Smithsonian building, so this is not like the Air and Space Museum or uh, that we did in, in the last podcast or Natural mm-hmm. History, anything like that. This one was pretty much all because of one man who was our treasury secretary. And I will say this, in terms of the organization of the museum, it, it is organized more like a traditional museum, lots of relatively small gallery rooms than, say, air and space, where you've got these huge rooms the, you know, the size of a football field. Actually, the West Wing, it, isn't the first room, the first gallery, numbered one, and it goes up to almost 100? 93 to be 93, specific. yes. And, and, and it's basically arranged in a chronological uh, order. So, all right. How do we get there? Where is it? Speaking of Air and Space Museum, it is directly across the National Mall from Air and Space. It's on the north side of the mall. The West Wing stretches between 4th and 7th, and uh, the East Building is actually uh, a little farther, this is a surprise, east of it. The easiest way to get there, as always, is to take the metro. The, me- the closest metro National Gallery, unfortunately, it's, it's Archives Navy Memorial, which I only say unfortunately because it only services Green and Yellow Line, which is one of the yeah. more limited lines there. If you're taking Red Line, Orange, Blue, it gets a little trickier. You either have to walk down. If you're Red Line, Judiciary Square, Orange and Blue, you either have to transfer, walk from Federal Triangle, or probably take an Uber or something. How much of a walk from the nearest subway that's not on the yellow or green line are we talking? So from Judiciary Square, how, how far of a walk? 10 minutes? Yeah, I would say 10 minutes. And it's uh, from the Judiciary Square Metro, it's a pretty easy walk. It's all downhill. Both ways? <laughs> no, no, it doesn't okay. work like that. But So if no. you're just going, it is a uh, half a mile walk. So it's it's not terrible. I once, for researching our website... I actually walked around the National Gallery of Art a few times, and I logged on my Fitbit over two miles just inside the west wing <laughs> of the building. <laughs> I wasn't so, sure when we were going to mention that, but oh my god. So, so if, you're, if you're balking over a half a mile walk from the metro station, maybe the National Gallery of Art isn't a great idea. Yeah. I will tell you there's a secret spot to park. I know that we're not advocating for people to, to drive, but on the weekends, on Sundays especially, you can mm-hmm. get up a spot typically on 4th Street, which is right near the sculpture garden and it's free to park on Sundays down there so it's it's actually pretty easy to find a spot that but I wouldn't recommend trying it certainly not during the week if you are happening to be there on this on Saturdays and Sundays it's a little bit easier there is quite a bit of parking on the streets around there I would also recommend using a navigation system of some sort to get back out the way DC is designed it is not an easy city to drive out of without getting lost 
That's true. And the, uh, the cost for admission is free, Brian? Is that right? It certainly is. It is not a Smithsonian, but it is free, just like the Smithsonian's. What are the normal hours of operation for this thing? When should we get there? How long should we plan to spend? I will start with how long you should spend there, because that is kind of up to you and how much you love art. If you really want to want to go over every piece in the museum, you will. it will probably take multiple days. If you're doing a highlights tour, I would say maybe you could get out of there in two or three hours. I think four is probably much better that might even just be the west wing i it really depends i've spent i spent a long time in there sometimes when i was doing the research for the west wing i couldn't i couldn't walk it completely it took me the better part of an entire day to stop and look at most of the significant paintings because there's almost 100 rooms there's you know some some rooms only have a few paintings but some of them have you know 10 or 15 and they're the size of a battleship i mean some of these paintings are huge you know, if you really want to look at the brushstroke works and, you know, actually contemplate the meaning of a little bit of of this, I think you're looking at a minimum of six hours. But yeah, you could, if you just want to come in and see the Impressionists, look at a couple, couple sculptures, probably three hours. I think you're right. Well, you can eat there or stop and have coffee or something. So, get, you know, pace yourself. I, we're going to talk about that. I oh, love yes. the cafe down there. It's awesome. I love I, it too. I think it's just wonderful service and excellent food. It's also, what has it got, like six tables? I mean, <laughs> you could, you, the, the three of us could, could occupy the entire thing. All right, we'll talk about that when we get to it. All right, uh, Brian, anything else in terms of the, the basics, um, normal hours of operation? Real quick, hours, yeah, Monday to Saturday, 10 to 5, Sunday 11 to 6 is their normal hours. It's a unique place in that it is one of the busiest museums in the country, yet it is so big it very, very rarely feels busy. I've been in there during the Cherry Blossom Festival, which is a huge crowd time for, for Washington, D.C., and it has, there has still been plenty of space to walk and look at the painting. So I don't, it's not really one of those you have to be there right as it opens. I agree. I think the, uh, we'll get to it when we, uh, we talk about the Impressionists, but I really think the only very crowded galleries are numbers 80 and above with the Impressionist stuff, the stuff that starts in the 12th or 13th century. Galleries essentially 1 through 79 are relatively lightly trafficked. Let's jump right in. Renee, you want to start on the first floor? Oh, yes, I'd love to. It's so spacious. You're absolutely right. All the rooms are small, as you mentioned, but they are really good enough size that everybody can fit comfortably in the spaces. And you start out typically from either coming in from the National Mall or coming off Constitution. Mm-hmm. And you walk in and you're going to um, just go to the information desk if you have any questions, pick up a map. Uh, you can drop off your gear in the uh, free, there's lockers, maybe it's 25 cents, not totally sure. But anyway, there's lots of people there to help you. You can sign up for a tour. But if you want to get headphones, listen as you know to information as you're going along. I think that's upstairs by the rotunda, which is what you do next. Walk up the steps, and mm-hmm. you will see the most magnificent rotunda. And it was designed by John Russell Pope, who was a good friend of Andrew Mellon's. And they actually died on the same day, which is actually very interesting. And mm-hmm. uh, but anyway, the rotunda has a gurgling fountain with. Um, mercury on it and it's a really popular spot to get do pictures of course this is selfie central and you will see a lot of people hanging out and of course when we're all missing and you know we lose each other we always say meet at the rotunda so that is a good place to keep in keep in mind and it's right in the middle of everything so you can go to two directions you can go to uh i want to say 50 which is going toward the east and then the other direction, you're going to go to the west and you're going to see 
everything from 53 to 93. And up in that area, you'll see it varies really from the 13th to the 19th century, everything from medieval, Baroque, Renaissance, Dutch, Impressionistic, uh, American, um, British, German, Spanish. It's, it's everything. They've got it all up there. And it's really a personal choice, I think, when you decide which ones do you want to visit. And you can either go by the highlights, which mm -hmm. you can find out ahead of time, or you can just simply make your way through. But you should, there, we will mention a couple of things where you should not miss in a little while. Sure. But overall, I would say my recommendation is to be sure to kind of think in your head, what do I love? What do I really want to see? And, and focus, because it's just uh -huh. so much. <laughs> there is, the rooms are arranged roughly chronologically with room number one, being the earliest stuff in room 93 being the, the later stuff, right? Exactly. The thing that I tell people, if you start in, in gallery one, you're de dealing with 13th century art. The next 30 or 40 rooms after room number one are basically Italian 15th century religious paintings. And I think we say in the book, there are only so many images of St. Jerome that one can see before you need to move on to something else. There is a lot, a lot, a lot of repetition, I think, in the first 30 or so rooms. But there are a few that are, that are highlights in there that are definitely not missed. But I think by and large, you can breeze through some of these rooms. Why don't you give us the highlights of the first 30 rooms? Okay, well, I think the first 30 rooms for me personally, I love the Da Vinci. I don't think anyone should ever miss that. It is the one and only Da Vinci in, I guess, Northern Hemisphere at the moment. So this is in Gallery 6? So it's the only painting by Da Vinci in the United States. It's a. It's not. They have none in South America either. Just he was not a prolific painter. No, he He's wasn't. Not. But he did so many other things. But it's called Ginerva Da Vinci, mm -hmm. and she was a lovely lady and painted. She was the first painting of its kind, I guess, first of three to um, have her face three quarter turned. So you sort of see her eyes, and just like Mona Lisa, she has that same kind of look that uh, she's also got her own little wall, and you can go behind her and see what was on the back. That was the interesting thing uh, to me when I saw this, that Da Vinci painted both sides of this painting. He, he designed it explicitly to be viewed on both sides. That's not something that you had, we had seen much of prior to this. That's actually true. They're really, and certainly not, even if there are paintings behind a lot of paintings, you're not going to mm -hmm. see them. But they made sure in this exhibit that you could see this window into the back of the painting. It's really interesting. And he was only 21 when he painted it, which is oh, another... Wow. Really? I didn't know that. Factoid. Yeah, it's true. Wow. I remember the painting. That's a remarkable skill for being 21. What else is uh, in these first few rooms that, uh, that we should definitely not... Botticelli's painting um, of the Annunciation is considered one of his greatest paintings and important painting because the Annunciation is sort of a theme that you see in a ton of different religious iconography uh, and it's really got uh, some beautiful facial expressions on the people in the painting. Of course it's it's Mary and the Virgin Mary and, and an angel and it's just really it's pretty impressive and he also did another super cool nativity scene but instead of doing it in the traditional barn. Instead, he did it in a Greek temple. He was a clever guy. He did a lot of interesting things. He's definitely worth um, you stopping in and taking a look. A couple of other things I think we want to pick out if you're uh, fans of Raphael. He was always my favorite Ninja Turtle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sp speaking of Leonardo and Raphael, uh, something around in around Gallery 20, he's got a, a couple of things. So Raphael um, was contemporary of both Michelangelo and Da Vinci. Three of them together are the masters of the Italian Renaissance period, right? 1490 to 1530. One of the things that Raphael did really, really well, and there's a great example of it here, is he's he's known for realistic paintings of people. So there's a painting called the uh, Bindo Altavori, who's a, a guy. 
it's in gallery 20 and you can see Raphael's skill here in painting the detail of Bindo Altovidi's hair. And the way that you can see that Raphael's skill is, there are actually two portraits next to each other. One is this Raphael. The other one is a, a guy by uh, the name of Girolamo de Benvenuto. It's a, a portrait of a young woman. It's a good painting, but you can see how well Raphael painted his portrait and how lifelike it is compared to his contemporaries. And I think that's, that's really, really fascinating. The other interesting thing, as you can see in Raphael's painting, that he probably picked up from da Vinci is the arrangement of subjects in the scene to form a pyramid shape. If you look at the Alba Madonna, which is also in room number 20, you see the placement of John the Baptist, Jesus, and Mary is in, in, in a rough pyramid shape. Mary's left arm is bent to create the right side of the triangle formed by Jesus and John on the left. It's kind of, uh, kind of interesting there. Anybody a big fan of Titian or really humongous portraits? Nah. Am I the only one? Am I the only one, really? <laughs> the one. So Titian, the uh, Italian Renaissance painter, apparently he was, we've all done this, right? You go into like Michaels or Steinmart, and really what you're looking for is painting by the foot. And I swear <laughs> to God, this is how this guy got paid because these paintings are massive. Uh, in Gallery 23, some of them are, you know, 15 feet high and 30 feet across some of them take up entire ceilings if you're fans of italian renaissance art also available there i will uh, i'll do one more uh and actually i will i will give the shout out to the national gallery guard who showed me this because it's fascinating so if you've got little kids and you want to explain to them what perspective is in paintings you know sometimes you can look at paintings and the eyes move with you or parts of the the painting move with you and in other paintings they don't there's a fantastic example of this in gallery 29 the painting is called the lute player and i'm going to screw up this artist's name but it's orazio gentilici and you want to focus uh you want to have your kids focus on the neck of the violin you want place your kids at the far left of the painting have them focus on the neck of the violin in the on the table it's facing towards them and then have your kids move slowly to the right side of the painting while keeping their eyes on the violin they'll see the violin's neck you know quote follow them as they move and that's an example of perspective. And a guard at the National Gallery of Art showed that to me. He was super excited to show it to me, too. So I thought, I, th I thought we needed to mention that. That's great. That's such a good thing to, to have, like, teach your kids when you take them in there. Even teach ourselves. It's so valuable to hear information. Some of those guards really are knowledgeable. They're very yeah, they're... excited to share their, their knowledge with you. You mentioned the Dutch, Flemish, and Netherlandish art, which is yeah. also a strength of the museum. That's around, it starts around what, 40, 39, something like that, somewhere in there? That sounds right. What are the highlights? I think, you know, of course, Rembrandt, He's he's got quite a few. He's got rooms of paintings in there, and he was the great master of his time. He painted in the 1600s. They have 50 of his paintings and drawings. Not all are really? on 50? display. Yep. Holy cow. And of course, he does his, he's, he's known for his moody, dark tones and mm -hmm. interesting light, use of light. He, he was definitely going, you know, he definitely changed drastically from the Renaissance times and how his, he, he approached painting. And I think most of the Dutch paintings at that, those times was in the same vein. But I think the highlight of that collection is his self-portrait, which he painted in 1659. And you can really get a good look at him. He lived well at some point, and toward the end of his life, he was he was not well off at all. He had many, many painful experiences, loss of his wife, and just lots of controversy followed the guy. So anyway, it's, it's, it's just very interesting to see his particular 
uh, self-portrait. He's a very, he looks like quite a nice chap, I have to say. He did a lot of self-portraits, right? And many of them are here. One of the things that I remembered in looking at them was how over the course of his life, I guess as his mood got darker, so did his paintings. Yeah, right, exactly. It's, it's really fascinating. The other thing that I that I really liked about about the Rembrandt things, and again, a, a guard told me this, I did not pick this up on my own. If you notice the way that Rembrandt did light and dark into his paintings, he uses the subject's nose as the dividing line between lighter and darker, which is, mm. I guess, fairly obvious and common to do in portraits. But he's got a windmill painting called The Mill, it's a landscape, the nose of the windmill is the demarcation between, <laughs> between sunlight on the right and storm clouds on the left of the of the painting as well. So even when he was doing landscapes, he, he had this concept of a nose that was the dividing line between light and dark. It was kind of great. That's very cool. I never knew that. Thanks for that. You can't leave the, the Dutch area without talking about my favorite artist of all time. Mr. Vermeer, perhaps? Mr. Vermeer, thank <laughs> you. Very good. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen the book called Chasing Vermeer, but it's this adorable book that's written about these two young people who fall in love with a Vermeer painting, which is actually stolen from the Art Institute of Chicago. So anyway, that's one of his very important paintings. It was the painting of a woman writing, and there's a woman writing here at the National mm -hmm. Gallery. So I, I'm not sure if it's the same one, but I will say that it's definitely a must-see. And of course, the girl with the pearl earring sort of made Vermeer famous. And sure. And you can see what, what was important about Vermeer's paintings. Sadly, they're very small. Did you notice that, that? That that was the thing that was surprising for me when I first started looking at the Vermeer stuff in person, how small they were and, and incredibly detailed. Yeah, they really are. He got down there to the tiniest detail and, and they're so miniaturized. It's, it's magnificent. But to get to the Vermeers, they're in the far back of that collection. Of course, you're going to know the room and I'm not. But um, 50A. It was difficult to find. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's probably easier to find the Netherlands than it is to find this room. Good. <laughs> yeah. It, it's far in the, like, 50A. That's exactly right. You go through this room filled with lots and lots of still lice, and at the very, very back is are his paintings on the wall. So you might have to ask help for help, and you won't be the first yeah. person who did. And the thing that killed me is some of those Vermeers, first of all, they're very, very small. They are in the middle of nowhere in the museum. You've really got to look for them. He did... Um, Two other works from 1665, A Lady in Writing and The Girl with a Red Hat. He, he favors women in his uh, in his paintings. All right, so that's uh, that's one side, right? Pretty much, yeah. That's, that's really staying on the west side of the, of the museum. Okay. I mean, of course, there's so much more. There's just, you, there's, there, you could go on and on and see. There's, I mean, I forget all the different things worth seeing, but they're just, you could just go forever in there and just, it's beautiful. The stuff is amazing. The one thing I would say, if, if you're bringing kids and you want to check out Galleries 1 to 51, definitely bring them into to Gallery 1 before you start. And especially if you're teaching sort of like older kids the history of Western art or whatever, one of the things you want to pick up in Gallery 1 is, and you want to show your kids, is how the paintings were done physically, like what they look like. So very early paintings, 13th century, for one thing in terms of subject matter almost exclusively religious subjects, almost exclusively about the morality lessons that they conveyed. They did not care very much at all about things like background, realism, or perspective. As you go through the different rooms, you can see how those other aspects of paintings were added. So you start seeing things like background, maybe in gallery four. You start seeing things like realism, you know, around gallery 20. And then when you talk about perspective in gallery 29 that we mentioned before is where you can start seeing like perspective. And, and the reason why you want to do that is by the time you get to Picasso, where he starts breaking all of, all of these rules around perspective, realism, and background, you essentially see the history of Western art from 
not being very concerned with it, to being hyper-concerned with all of it, to breaking all of the rules around it. And that's sort of the journey through the National Gallery of Art. So as you're going through and you, you've got kids, keep that, keep that in mind. All right, so let's start in the galleries 50 and above. What are the big things in, let's say, galleries 50 through 60? Anything, anything worth seeing? I think the Goyas are pretty impressive. He's got some really, really big ones that are really worth seeing. And let's see, who else should we check out in that area? You, you want to jump in on that? British Landscapes, J.M.W. Turner, John Constable. Oh, okay. Yep, yeah, right. those are landscapes and seascapes. I believe it was Constable, but they're they're good for what they are. I think they're they're fine examples. But I'm not a huge fan of Goya. I got to tell you, it's just not my thing. <laughs> I kind of view galleries 50 through 58 ish as expendable on a short tour. It's they're fine. It just doesn't really do anything for me. I mean, especially compared to Vermeer. They're good walkthroughs, especially the British landscape stuff. Are it's it's nice to just walk through the room. They're pleasant. There are a few that will will draw the eye, but there's nothing that really requires further investigation. Yeah. I think that the French paint is kind of interesting if you're you take them in perspective. Like right before the French Revolution, there was all this like really over the top looking paintings of people and it kind of gives you a sense of why there was a big revolution you know because these oh that's fantastic everything about them was ornate and over the top and it's sort of you can kind of see history through these paintings so that is one i think advantage of going through that direction good british paintings like you said uh copley reynolds romney some good ones gallery 59 uh, transitions from british portrait artists to american around the time of the american revolution you get a couple of portraits by Gilbert Stewart, the skater, which is the portrait of William Grant, and Sir Joshua Reynolds. The skater launched Stewart's career as a portrait artist. He painted more than a thousand subjects, including U.S. Presidents Washington through John Quincy Adams. And, of course, the unfinished Stewart work of Washington is the basis for George's image on the back of the dollar bill. That painting, of course, is at the National Portrait Gallery nearby. I am a huge fan of American landscapes, especially the Hudson River School, as we all are, right? We all are, right? Oh, we are. Yes, definitely. <laughs> uh, if you, like me, are a, a fan of American uh, landscapes in the Hudson River School, you want to see Gallery 60's four-panel installation called The Voyage of Life. Brian, you've seen this, right? Oh, of course. Yes. Oh, yes. Is this not the most depressing damn series of paintings you have ever seen in your life? Oh, yes. <laughs> so in the series, Cole expresses human life as a solitary boat trip down a river. So it's the calm river of youth lined with green trees and lush landscapes in one. It gives way to storms and rapids of manhood and the desolate surroundings of old age. And I swear to God they should serve drinks <laughs> in, the, in this little foyer in which they show this. Anyone over age 40 needs tequila to see it. It's fascinating stuff. Very good example of Hudson River School. Just depressing as hell. If you like this sort of thing, though. So this is Gallery 59 or 60. 60. 60, thank you. More Hudson River School stuff, including Cole, A.B. Durand, and Bierstadt are in Gallery 64 and in Lobby C off the East Garden Court. We'll talk more about that because, again, I'm a huge fan of Hudson River School. I think the kids really like seeing the Voyage of Life Gallery. Even the little kids, I think, get a kick out of that. And it's definitely... Because they like to laugh at the old people. (laughs) (laughs) But it's understandable, right? You can can show them the progression and that... A series of paintings can have a theme, right? Exactly. All right. Anything else to see in prior to gallery, let's say, 70? I think the only thing I mentioned between between now and Impressionism is the, is the Whistler and the John Singer Sargent stuff. Mm-hmm. You said between 60 and 71? Yeah, those are some... 16, the, yeah, 80. There's a great painting by, I want to say, Whistler of the red-haired woman wearing a white dress, and it was painted in the 1860s, and it was a famous painting because... 
he had painted it and submitted it to the French Salon, the Academy of Arts, and he was rejected. And so he was so angry, he submitted it to this uh, alternative show called the Salon de Refuse, which is like <laughs> those of us refused. And, That's great. Um, <laughs> so he is uh, pretty, you know, considered at her time to be infamous and bold because she was wearing casual attire, which they didn't traditionally wear in paintings, right. standing on a fur rug. And according to the time, people were very uncomfortable looking at it. I guess it was maybe a little too intimate or something. Uh, mm. too, yeah, I don't exactly know what it was that was so controversial, but anyway, it was in its day. I also like to contrast uh, Whistler with John Singer Sargent because they had two different approaches to portraiture and they're both Americans. Yeah. So Sargent was super, super, super detailed. He's got one Ellen Peabody and he got the portrait. I mean, you can see every detail on the black and white dress that she's got. You can see every detail of the background, which I think is a rich red velvet curtain. And it's, it's fantastic. And he knew, I mean, Sargent knew that these paintings were designed to be displayed by the subjects that he's painting, you know, in their home, you know, above a mantle or in a dining room or something. So really just showcased incredible detail, luxurious surroundings, very noble, very regal, very rich uh, things. You know, you, you contrast that with Whistler, who Symphony in White Number 1, which is basically every different shade of white surrounding the girl's face, where it's not very much detail, virtually an entire white canvas and some skin around her, her eyes. It's a great effect, but the two completely different styles of portraiture. It was the Chicago Institute of Art. They did a side-by-side comparison of, of paintings between Whistler and Sargent over time, and it was it was really fascinating work. And I think that was that was one of their main points as well. I, I tend not to read cards when I'm walking through it, but I, if I if I learned anything through osmosis, it was that. Let's go on to impressionism. We had, we'd mentioned it that this is sort of the highlight of. National Gallery. Brian, you want to tell us what, uh, what when we talk about impression, Impressionism, number one, what do we mean? Uh, two, where was it and when? Impressionism is kind of when I start to wake up with art. <laughs> so right. I've, been, I've been fairly quiet up until now. If you had a poster in your dorm room and it was of art, it was a Van Gogh, right? Or a, and I did not. Dude, really? <laughs> no, I, I didn't start getting into art even a little bit until maybe 10 years ago and uh, and and it, i've just been kind of learning as i go so i'm only up to liking you know impressionism and post impressionism at this point so All i right. haven't gotten to classic art yet but uh impression i mean the the strict definition as written by uh, i believe you len <laughs> impressionism <laughs> is that it has uh, these its few general characteristics are an emphasis on capturing the overall color and lighting of a scene rather than lots of details. Right. You should short brush strokes, high contrast colors, trying to blend everything into smooth gradients. And paintings, they tend to be of everyday subjects rather than religious icons, uh, basically because the church was no longer uh, commissioning these, these projects. But in short, what it means is that an artist like Monet would look at a church facade and rather than paint the exact detail of the church facade, he would go for what he kind of saw briefly looking at it. And that was the general outlines. It was the lighting. It was the shadows. Uh, impressions tend to be very, very big on lighting. So it's... Okay. It could even be weather, you know, like if it's rainy or mm-hmm. foggy. I mean, I think they inter- incorporate incorporated that into some of their paintings too on several of them monet most famously would if the light would change even a little bit would just toss the canvas to the side and start a new one which is why he has so many of the same 
basic view. That's what I love about that. And also, uh, I think Renee mentioned with uh, talking about Modigliani that these paintings were often done very, very fast, often in a day, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. The term Impressionism wasn't coined until 1874. Renee, where do you want to start when we, when we talk about Impressionism? What room would you start in here? Oh, man. I'm trying to remember where, where you go when you first walk in. Up to this point, every room had been in basically chronological order. So room right. one was the earliest. But it switches for Impressionism. Because Gallery 93 is actually the very early beginning of it. And you walk, you go backwards to 80. That's right. That's absolutely right. You're right. I never really recognized that when I was doing it. Little touring tip. Little touring tip. That's good to know. That's why you're the touring guy. (laughs) I find it so like mesmerizing to walk through there, even with the larger number of people that are always in there. um, You still, there's plenty of space and every single painting has good, it's just really nicely displayed and they, they really... And they're nicely organized too, you know, sometimes based on either the, the painter or also by the subject. So that's what's kind of cool. There's one room I really liked, which was sort of like the exotic room with Gauguin and Renoir, somebody like a lady laying on a pillow. Can you remember? Anyway, just lots of interesting, cool things going on in these paintings, in my opinion. To paraphrase Augustus St. Gaudens, who's in Gallery 66, Insanity is to art as garlic is to salad. <laughs> in that case, it's a good case that Vincent Van Gogh was not a chef because he exhibited signs of mental illness for most of his short life. So there's a couple of uh, Van Gogh works here. All of the Van Gogh works uh, were here were painted after he left Paris for Ar- Arles, France, in 1888 and before his suicide in 1890. Obviously, there's a couple of them. The earliest works are Rolin's Baby and La Mousset. Um, I'm butchering my my French titles here, but. Bold brushstrokes for both the subject and the background. Heavy, heavy use of paint, which Renee, you, you mentioned, and the use of colors to express mood. You mentioned before with Rembrandt using darker colors mm-hmm. as he got older and more depressed. Van Gogh, you can tell his state of mind by his brushstrokes often. Oh, his later, that's a great point. His <laughs> later ones, the paint is is put on there with, it, it looks like spackle. It is so, as he just right. started to lose it, basically. But also so, his uh, self-portraits in there. Does he have his ear or not? I think the one is his head is tilted so you don't see it. Oh, okay. So the self-portrait from 1889 is a mirror image, so it doesn't show cutting off his own ear. Cause that happened in 1888. But he died in 1890. He was really young, relatively young when he, when he died. Still left more than 2,000 paintings, again, alluding to Rene's point about these guys working very, very fast. So we were talking about the South Pacific stuff. Both Van Gogh and Degas were fans of Gauguin's style, which deviated from Impressionism by going with natural objects and artificial colors. He did, he did travel to the South Pacific, including Tahiti, around the time that Europe was fascinated with that part of the world. And he's got there are a bunch of uh, works that are on display here. There is the one called By the Sea, another one called Words of the Devil, The Bathers, and something called Delectable Waters. And you can see how Gauguin, as he paints the human bodies in these, and you can see the similarities between that and what Picasso, who we'll talk about in a little bit, did with uh, his painting Two Youths Next Door. A super, super interesting stuff there. What else do we want to hit in the Impressionists? There's the Monet landscapes. We can't not talk about Claude mm-hmm. Monet, Gallery 87. He's got a beautiful, one of his, I think one of his finest of all of his Giverney paintings. It's sometimes you just see a lily pad. Sometimes you just see a bridge. This has it all. It's a great one. Don't you think? Which one is it? It's one of Monet's paintings of Giverney, Giverney which is his yeah. house where he used what? to paint the lilies, uh, lily pads. And oh, his, his yeah, yeah, yeah. And, right, right. And the same ones over and over again. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he, you can see many different versions of this. I think he, he actually had this. You can go visit his house in France and see it. And uh, it really looks just like his paintings. But he this is one of the one of the times where he did the whole thing. So you could literally. Oh, the Japanese know? footbridge is what it's. Oh, the yeah. footbridge. OK, OK. Yeah, OK. So I got that. All right. Yeah, you can actually go visit the Japanese footbridge in this. In this house. It's a tourist attraction. Apparently he did like a dozen of these all from the exact same spot in his yard. And, and the paintings show the different times of day and the different seasons in which he did it he did he did those he did uh there's one called uh, a, a triptych called waterloo bridge which he did on a gray day at dusk and then at sunset same thing so that's sort of like the monet theme within the uh, national gallery it's the same thing painted several different times that's one of the highlights in there i think monet uh talking about the passage of time and artists had mm-hmm. a retinal disease and cataracts so his later paintings get very fuzzy <laughs> Even for impressionists, really. And if you look up some of his later lily pad uh, paintings, it's the most noticeable because he did them all at his house when he, he was kind of afraid to leave because he couldn't see very well. And they are basically abstract at that point. That's great. Really? That's cool. Yeah. I'll do one more impressionist thing because I'm a huge fan of pointillism. But you guys knew that, right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> George Surratt, the father of pointillism, is there. So pointillism is impressionism taken to the extreme. So if impressionism uses short brushstrokes and bold unblended colors the logical extension of that is thousands of tiny dots of color like a dot matrix printer to create entire paintings the one here is a seascape at port ambassin our advice is stand as close as the security guards let you <laughs> and all you will see is nothing but those tiny dots and then as you gradually move back a couple of feet the dots form an ocean a sky a coastline and mountains yeah one quick touring tip here and I don't know. I don't know why. And Renee, I'm, I'm hoping maybe you'll know. But galleries 86 through 90 have been closed for quite a while, and that is about two thirds of the impressionist galleries. And they, I can't find any information on why they're closed, or when they're opening, or if they're moving paintings anywhere. You're do, absolutely do right. Do you know anything about that? No, I was just there, and yes, those are still closed, and yeah. I don't know why. But they do have occasionally. They have to, you know either change the exhibits or fix it up. It sounds like it's been oh, there long yeah. enough that it must be some kind of construction, but I don't know. Mm. Okay, but just if anyone listening to, the, to this podcast in the next few months, you might want to, if you're really set on seeing the Impressionists, they still have a lot of Impressionist paintings, but a few of these galleries have been closed for a little while, so, so you know. I really like the Rouen paintings of, uh, by Monet, the, of the two, he did, like you were saying, how he was losing his vision. Another example of that is in his paintings of Rouen, which is this beautiful mm-hmm. church. And they're mm-hmm. very, very impressionistic. They're so, that's a true impressionism when you really can't even barely even distinguish lines of any kind. It's just like, it's it's just really cool. And they put them right next to each other. So that makes it pretty interesting to see how his interpretation differed, maybe did based on the time of day. That's fascinating. Yeah, so I think this is the reason why the impressionists collection at uh National Gallery gets so much attention. There are some fantastic examples of the art form there. And not only are they done by artists that we all know, but they're some of the finest examples of their work. So definitely a highlight of the museum. All right, let's uh, let's finish this up, uh, this first floor, with some guy named Picasso. <laughs> Gallery 80, I believe, has three of his works. Yeah, one of them is a, it's called... Uh, family of Saltambancas. I don't know yeah. if I'm pronouncing that right. I'm shocked. I'm not. It's a picture of before he got really into his surreal style. He was he did paint regular shaped people, yeah. and and these are their circus people. And he felt bad for the neglected underclass, and he would paint them often to 
maybe elevate them or you can see how he changed and uh, but this was an early one of his earliest painted in 1905. You can see the things that he's experimenting with in the family of Sultan books. He's experimenting with the shapes, the Harlequin shapes on the costumes with the backgrounds. Remember we talked about Da Vinci and Raphael were using triangles to compose their subjects. Picasso is doing this as well, but he's rotating the triangle 90 degrees. He's got to be doing it intentionally, right? No one, no one does that accidentally. Also, you mentioned that these people are sort of commoners. You can tell from the background, which is essentially a desert that he knows that these people aren't regarded highly. And again, contrast that with what John Singer Sargent was painting. In the, in the galleries in the 60s, where you have very high-class, very high-status people. That's definitely not the subject matter for Picasso. There's a blue period, a painting from Picasso's blue period here, right? Yes. Which but, is? Uh, I don't know the name of it. Le Gourmet. Ah, oh, lovely. Roughly 1901 to 1904 was his blue period where, like Brian, everything he painted was blue. <laughs> the thing I love about this, besides the fact that it's all one hue, is... He purposely painted the table out of perspective. He did not try to make the table look like it belongs in the scene. So if you think about what we've just done in touring the galleries one through 80 of this, we've basically gone from Western art not knowing what perspective is to being hyper-realistic to Picasso breaking all the rules around perspective, all within you know 100 rooms of each other. That is a good point, and then you're right. That's very impressive to see yes. such a huge collection and such a breadth of change and evolution. I mean, not to push our book or anything, but I think that's one of the things we explained really well in the book that you don't get from just the gallery tour, that it's the establishment of rules and patterns in Western art. So literally starting in gallery one and then the intense focus and the coalescence of those rules you know, in the 1700s, 1800s, and then breaking all the rules by the early part of the, the 1900s. Um, by the way, Len, those, uh, they have moved the, the three Picassos we were just talking about to the East Wing, uh, which we'll get to in a little bit. They're in Gallery 217C over in the 217C. East Wing. Okay, George Clooney and I, uh, thank you for our upcoming adventure. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> Len, right. you know an awful lot about art. How to, what's your background on this? Uh, I'm a computer scientist, of course. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I was. I, I like to joke about this, but I did all of this research for the unofficial guide to Washington D.C. Wow. What we did for the for the book was took pictures of every piece of art that was on display, and then I went went back and researched all of them. And it, it, this is why it took six months for me to write <laughs> the National Gallery Review. But I essentially taught myself, you know, the basics of Western art. Wow, that is impressive. You could start teaching everybody this. You are I, good at this. Thank you. I appreciate that. I was Because we normally we, we talk about Disney stuff, and, and I understand how Disney works. But it was really refreshing to be able to settle down and say, Cezanne, what would, you know, who was he? What was his contribution to Western art? They know all the big names, but but some of the little stuff in the relationships between them, like like who was somebody's apprentice, yeah, you know, awesome. things like that. That was all fascinating stuff to me. And if so. you go on their website, they do have great stuff about oh. details, you know, backgrounds on these stories yeah. and who these people were that they were painting and biographies of the artists. It's, it's great. It's a very big resource there for people. It's a great website. And the photos that they have of the pictures, I mean, it's not as good as seeing it live, but no. they do some beautiful images of these of these paintings as well. So it's a great website. All right, let's talk about the, uh, the ground floor. Ground floor is actually where I started when I was looking at the National Gallery. And it, it was good for two reasons. One, uh, there's a cafe there where you can get coffee. But number two, there, there are two, two artists that I absolutely love on the ground floor. One of them is uh, Auguste Rodin, and the other one is Edgar Degas. Gallery 2 on the ground floor is uh, French sculptor Auguste Rodin, one of the most active and influential sculptors of the 20th century. As soon as you walk in, you'll see his most famous work, which is The Thinker. It's shown by itself 
here, but it's actually designed to be one part of a huge entrance mural for Paris's Museum of Decorative Arts. And he was actually supposed to be depicting scenes from Dante's Inferno in this thing. The mural was never completed, but several of Rodin's designs for the individual figures survive, including another one here called The Kiss. There are 50 different versions of The Thinker in various sizes around the world. The one display here was the third one ever made. Wow. It is from Rodin's original model, and it was done while he was alive. So the way that they, they judged the value of the Rodin sculptures, especially for The Thinker, where he did a series of them, is how close was the artist to the actual pouring of the bronze and was it done during his life? So this is number three. Makes it extremely valuable. Brian, you've seen this, right? This, it's it's oh, smaller yeah. than I thought it was going to be. This one is real small. I've seen at least uh, copies of them that are bigger <laughs> before. They have a Rodin really nice collection up in Philadelphia. It's uh, just a museum okay. dedicated totally to him. So if you're a fan, you should definitely oh, yeah. head up there and check it out. They have these... Gates of Hell, his most famous uh, door. Oh, that well, that's yeah. that's what this that's what the thinker was supposed to be part of. Right, was the gates exactly. Of hell. So, oh, and then you need to go check that out. But it still, just to have, like you said, the third one, it, it's, mm-hmm. it's incredible. And there's also a really nice collection of his work in the Raleigh Museum of Art as well. Really, in Raleigh? Uh huh. I didn't know that. There's a great museum cool. in Paris too, but you probably would have guessed that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, one more thing of Rodin's, and this is actually my favorite one. It's mesmerizing. It's his first well-renowned work. It's called The Age of Bronze. It's at the far end of Gallery 2. Did it in 1875-1876. It's a life-size male nude, first done in plaster. The plaster version is in Gallery 3, and then he did it in bronze. When he first exhibited this in 1877, it, uh, it scandalized Paris because of its aesthetic. At the time, nude models were generally seen only in works of mythology, or historical scenes, you did not see contemporary male nudes at all. The other interesting thing about it was the bronze is so lifelike that people accused Rodin of fraud. They essentially said he cast a model in plaster and faked the skill needed to make the work out of bronze. And he eventually had a photographer take side-by-side images of the model and the sculpture to prove that the work couldn't have been made from a cast. And just for additional reference, the plaster version is, is like I said, this, I'm displaying Gallery 3. It's a fascinating work excellent proportions excellent representations you can see every muscle and sinew on the uh, on the model it's a it's a very very good example of, of our dance work the other thing that i love on the ground floor is in gallery two it's edward Naga. he did a couple of things there's a study uh, of his work called little dancer age 14 and he does a series of these and they're the way that the galleries arrange them is sort of in a a four corner arrangement where you see different prototypes of it uh, and then the and then the finished one so you can see how he did he was mo- trying to model let's say the height of the sculpture or the dress or some detail about the legs and as you go around the room you can see how the the model progressed but the things that i love the most are Degas sculpture of the, the the equestrian models of horses he did these in beeswax not bronze and he dyed them brown to make it look like bronze why because beeswax was cheaper and easier to work with than bronze. Wow. But they show horses and riders in sort of various stages of movement. And they are remarkable because of the guy's ability to capture like the strain of the muscles and the beat of hooves. I cannot believe that they're not already on an Hermes scarf somewhere. They should be. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that, Brian. <laughs> yeah, but they're really, really good work. And again, they did them out of beeswax. They're, they're fantastic. You'd wonder if they would melt or something, right? right. So, they, so they're behind glass. You know that they've got to be pumping cold air oh, because yeah. you know DC summers and stuff like that. But I oh, think yeah. that's that's the those are the highlights of the ground floor. Is there anything you guys? Oh, 
There is something else important on the ground floor. All right, go ahead. That would be Mary Cassette, the one and only female, practically, in the entire building. And it's pretty pathetic to think that there's only one female painter. Maybe there's others. I don't know. But that's the only one I saw. And I was happy <laughs> that she was there. <laughs> I think you're right. There is actually. She's, she might be the only one. It's pretty sad. But we do have, thankfully, in Washington, just down the road, a National Museum of Women in the Arts and plenty of female painters in that building. But... As for the National Gallery, Mary Cassatt was the only one who made it, and she does have a great collection there, and she does beautiful paintings of children and families, and she was a woman who was American who went and lived in France and uh, hung out with some of the important Impressionists of her time. Okay. I think she might have been dating Degas, but I don't know for sure. And anyway, did you know that? No, I didn't. I thought so. I know she used to be in Gallery eighty six, uh, but that's it's been a year since I've seen her stuff. Have they moved? They moved her down to a special room. Then that's fantastic. Well, she's downstairs, kind of near where you were talking about, near the Degas, and okay. um, also there. I think Gallery thirty nine. Is that what you're okay? Oh, um, so they did move her. She's down there, and they have some of the relocated impressionists from upstairs. Some of the Monets and Degas paintings. Okay, right. so the last time I was there, Gallery thirty nine was uh, mid twentieth century American artists. That is all in the East Wing. Well, they moved them. Okay, fair enough. Things have moved around, and they do that periodically. But but if you do want to see the one and only female painter, you need to go check out Mary. The one and only female painter. (laughs) All right, fair enough. I hadn't even Uh, thought of that. And as you were saying it, I was trying to think. I'm like, no, all the other ones I know of are in different museums. In Gallery 41, they did this interesting arrangement of human body parts, which sounds terrible. It sounds like an episode of CSI. Is that still there, or have they moved that? I don't think I saw that. There's a couple of Picassos, a Mondrian, and a Matisse. Did not see that. Did you see that? Maybe that's over in the East Building, because there are some pretty interesting things over on that end, as far as like more experimental uh, kinds yeah, of Yeah, that might be, because 41 is kind of an extension of 39 now, where it's some of the Pizarros and things that... Oh, uh, okay. So they moved. Oh, to the Surratts are there now too. Okay. Yeah. They so weren't there. The they weren't there last time I was there. It's, they've really taken the basement to to move to bring out more of the impressionist stuff. Ah, oh, that's a shame. When I was there, they had the, what most of Gallery Forty One was given to works that represent the human head in ver- in different styles. So there's a Matisse painting, a Kirchner, uh, Joan Miro, another Matisse, another Picasso, and then they had a Matisse pot of geraniums in there. So it's like human head, human head, human head sculpture, human head, pot of geraniums. <laughs> and, and you guys, I actually wrote the, the museum. I'm like, what am I missing? What? Why did you put this painting in here? Like, they thought oh, it was just, funny. Yeah, they're, just, they're like, just, just a painting. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. That does it for the, uh, for the West Wing. Who wants to take us through the East Wing? The important thing is when you walk in the building is that it's an incredible building. It's trapezoid style um, and it's getting some construction right now. And it's uh, they have a like a waterfall that goes down in the middle. But right now it's under construction, so you Mm -hmm. can't see it. But um, once you get in there, the thing I I just want to make sure everybody does is do not leave without going to the very top of the building so that you can check out the giant blue rooster. He is so cool. And you get a great view of the U.S. Capitol and the museum and a lot of other interesting, you know, D.C. buildings. You can see over to the Smithsonian. And, but the only a lot of people don't get there because either it's raining, unfortunately, what's happened to Brian. But also sometimes they just don't know what's up there. So be sure that uh, you do not leave without going to the top and you can easily take an elevator right up. Okay. Yeah, it's hard to talk about the East Wing without talking about how it's constructed. It was actually designed by I.M. Pei in the 70s, opened in 1978, which is the year I was born, so... You're killing me. 
And it's part of the Louvre. I mean, IMP also designed the entrance to the Louvre. That's the same yes. kind of trapezoid style, tri- uh, triangular thing. I thought that was just a movie set for some uh, Dan Brown novel. Is it, <laughs> it actually functions? <laughs> okay. All right. That's the little inverted pyramid. Didn't you even read the book? No, uh, <laughs> it's been a while. But uh, it's, yeah, the, the East Wing is all, it's basically all triangles. The, the land is trapezoidal, and inside there are three towers that are all triangles, and um, two towers primarily that have the uh, collections in them. It's a very beautiful building, it's very open, it is airy, it is light. The problem is for touring it, it makes it mm-hmm. almost impossible because. To do it chronologically, you kind of have to go from floor one of tower one to floor two, floor one of tower two to floor two of tower one, and there's no real way to walk in between them, so you end up kind of going all the way up and all the way back down and then over to the next one, and it is is a little convoluted (laughs) to tour, and it makes it very easy to miss things, so uh, I suggest getting a map when you go in. What do we not want to miss over in the East Wing? I know that uh, there's a lot of uh, this is more modern art, right? Contemporary. This is this is all the the contemporary modern art from around 1900 and and forward. There are now some of the Mon- Monets, Monets, Toulouse Lautrecs, Matisse, Van Gogh, Cezanne. Some of those are are over here. So I guess I guess we've answered the, my question about where the uh, impressionists went. It seems like some of them got moved to the ground floor of the West Wing, and the others moved over to the East Wing. Okay. Uh, the ground floor is actually the permanent collection, so just be aware that you probably always will get to see those, which is mm. great. Nice. One of my personal favorites on it's on the ground floor of the East Wing. It's a Matisse painting that is it's called Open Window Couleur. Matisse is is generally considered one of a pioneer of the the Fauve school, which Fauve paintings are kind of a take on it, it's a extension of impressionism where things are not not painted realistically but it's very oversaturated colors mm-hmm. the colors aren't mixed brush strokes are are completely noticeable open window specifically i like because it looks really it's one of those paintings that you look at if you're walking by and say oh my kid does that at school it looks very <laughs> very simple but when you look at the way that everything is mixed and the way it draws your eye out the window, the, the, he actually uses a lot of, of master level techniques and different textures. He basically mixes colors by putting certain colors next to each other so that the eye starts to blend them together. It's it's a really fascinating technical painting. High contrast colors together, right? Mm-hmm. I agree. It's it's fascinating. It's It, it takes a, a minute to get used to, though, especially the... Oh, yes. Depending yeah, the what bright, you were looking the at bright the... colors are, are shocking. Yeah. Yeah. And that is, that's actually uh, Gallery 217B. And in there okay. you will find there are a few Van Goghs, there are Cezannes, there's one of Monet's Houses of Parliament, which is another thing that he painted multiple copies of. Hmm. So those rooms are very good ones. Rene already mentioned uh, Han Kok is what it's called, the giant rooster that sits <laughs> on top of the building that I have not seen up close because they won't let you out there when it's raining for some reason. <laughs> and I've been there when it is raining every single time. Well, yeah, I mean, you don't, you don't want your uh, death certificate to say uh, death by chicken. That would be... <laughs> Like just falling off a roof trying to see exactly. giant roost. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and the, before it moved here, it used to stand in Trafalgar Square in London. Yeah, so. really? Oh. Yeah, it's a well-traveled rooster. You get to keep it? I hope we do. I, they, it, they haven't mentioned that it's only temporary, so I, I'm assuming, at least for, for a long period of time. 
nine times a um, Another another specific painting that that shouldn't be missed, and this is uh, Jackson Pollock is not is not one for everybody, but his most famous and uh, best painting, number one, 1950, also known as Lavender Mist, Mist is, yeah. is uh, in Gallery 407B. Pollock, of course, was a drip painter. He did not use easels, palettes, paint brushes. It, it's it's a very chaotic looking painting there's nowhere to look there's no boundaries but um it it is almost symmetrical in its chaos and it's a very it's a surprisingly impressive painting and uh describing it is not a good (laughs) idea i've found in the last 30 seconds this is the thing about pollock i think we all agree he, he was a genius but to define it, to say, this is the thing that he did, or this is, you know, looking at Lavender Mist, right? This is what makes a Pollock a Pollock. It's so difficult to say, this is what makes a Pollock a Pollock. I mean, it, it's, it's drip paintings. And, and you could talk about the layering or the composition of the colors or the scope of how he fills the canvas with the shapes and whatnot. But if, if any piece of art has an ineffable quality, it's this, right? I kind of love this painting. I, I, yeah, I'm the same way. I, I scoffed at Pollock's work for, for a long time, actually, until I started actually seeing them. And uh, they're more impressive. And I, the gallery this is in, this is 407, mm-hmm. is a very easy one to miss because it is not in any of the towers. It is actually on the, the upper level in between towers one and two so if you're just going up and down the towers you won't even see it you have to walk out of the tower on the upper level and into this gallery so really you didn't you didn't like pollock not that i didn't like him i just knowing the way he painted i was like well that's that's dumb that like why you you just stand (laughs) on a ladder and throws paint but seeing it and and understanding why he did it and what because he basically just wanted to change how paintings were done and uh And I, I agree with you when you're talking about, about all the research you did for this book. The more I learn about the artists and their reasoning for, for doing these, the more I respect the art itself. And that actually was into my the next thing that I really enjoy is the uh, the pop art that they have in the <sighs> in the East Wing, which is, is also Gallery 407, just D. Uh, everybody knows Andy Warhol. By the way, I, I hated Andy Warhol with a passion until I went to the Andy Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh. Oh, it's great. Com- completely changed my view of him. Yeah, dude was a genius. Go ahead. I'll, I'll have to do that because I, I don't hate Andy Warhol, but I don't love I him. I hated him. He was uh, a, he was a very good commercial artist before he became pop icon. Mm-hmm. But he was well, born and, to do this stuff. I mean, he was doing these little drawings when he was a little tiny tyke. He, he, his yeah. chairman Mao was just pretty impressive, I have to yeah. say. His painting of and this is later in his, his his time, but his commercial stuff that he did for shoes is fantastic. But I think his the best painting he ever did is Debbie Harry. I think it's mm-hmm. just. It's just perfect. I know it. Liz Taylor is the one that everyone in that series. Everyone realized. I think it's a painting of Debbie Harry is quintessential. Anyway, go yeah. Ahead. Well, they they have um, a boy from Meg. Uh, one of his his green Marilyn is uh, is there. Mm-hmm. But the one um, actually the one I I enjoy more is the, they have a Roy Lichtenstein. <laughs> okay, speaking, speaking of pop art. Okay. Yeah, is that Mickey Mouse on it's, there? It's called Look Mickey. Yes, with Mickey yeah. Mouse and Donald Duck on it. Um, is it really? Which, which ties like into it. our other interests, son. But no, um, but what I one of the things that and this is when I was saying about finding out about the artists because part of in Roy Lichtenstein what he does are very bright color. I mean, it, it mm-hmm. is, is pop art in its poppiest. It's and, almost like a newspaper feel to his. Yeah, uh, it's got little dots, just like. 
Surratt painting in a way. Yeah, and and it's very it's very comic pages styling. Yeah. Oh, there you and, go. That's better. Yeah. And but he pretty much did it. He says because he was looking at modern art at the time and said, mm-hmm. and and this is a paraphrase of a quote of his that people were buying the dripping paint rag and hanging it up as art. Mm-hmm. So he thought well, people will like everything. I want to make something they don't like, so I'm going to make a super commercialized version of art, and people will hate it. And they didn't. And I find that hilarious. That he was trying to find something no! that people would hate so much that they would reject, and he couldn't do it. That's funny. Laurel and I have this conversation about what makes art. And uh, have you seen the, um, you know what assemblage is? Mm-hmm. It's found, found objects you put together and, you know, like... Oh, yeah. Here are seven seashells, a spool, a bobbin spool of thread, a Bic pen, and somebody's lighter. And I'm going to put these all in a shadow box and call it art. It drives me crazy because I don't think it's art, but uh, but I see your point. <laughs> you might not want to go to the Renwick Gallery, you know. The Renwick Gallery's permanent collection is uh, is quite a bit of that. <laughs> I tend to walk past all of it. All right, uh, Renee, who else do we need to see in the East Wing? So we've talked about Jackson Pollock. Who else do we need to see? We've talked about the Impressionists. There's so many really important painters of the current era, but I think that you should also check out the different installations that they have upstairs, which are kind of like uh, three-dimensional pieces that you can walk all around and see different things. There's uh, are, these just, the, uh, are these the Alexander Calder mobiles? Well, that is there too. Of course, okay. it's hanging. It's the main, the Alexander Calder mobiles that is a giant uh, red and black mobile hanging from the ceiling and you can't miss it believe me but they also have other kinds of they do have other calders um but there's like all different uh, kinds of, of art upstairs some some like assemblage like you mentioned but oh. all with purpose all with purpose oh so you say <laughs> last time i was there they had mark rothko they had a couple mm-hmm. of his and they had some jesper johns are they still there yep rothko is for sure yeah they have an, an entire room of, of rothko's there are i think 10 of them in there Nice. Which ones? Anything particular? Oh, Untitled, number eight, Untitled, Untitled, Orange and Tan. (laughs) Keep going on. Rothko, uh, for those who don't know, he is a color field painter. So he paints in big blocks of colors. He'll put different colors next to each other. They are meant to evoke emotion, but not a specific emotion. The, The viewer is kind of left to put their own emotions onto a painting, which... I yeah. go back and forth on whether I enjoy Mark Rothko's paintings or not. I, I've always have. So one of the things that I loved about about Rothko is he's, you know, he's, he's explaining not the painting, but the size of these paintings because they're massive, right? Some of them mm-hmm. are like 50, 60 square feet. And he did it on purpose. And he said, with small paintings, you, the viewer, are aware of being an outsider looking in, in the scene. But he wanted you, as you're looking at his paintings, to feel like you were inside of the art. And so he actually suggested you get as close as you can to the painting. In fact, if you uh, if you talk to the guards nicely, they will let you get within like a foot or two of them. And you could just essentially stick your nose as close to the, the painting as they'll allow you and just be enveloped by the color. It's kind of fascinating. I think that's definitely the best way to experience it. Also, didn't Rothko, didn't he also commit suicide? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yep. He's, and he's another one that you can you can see the colors um, of yeah. the ten. Getting darker over time. <laughs> Of the 10 they have here, they start out with, you know, oranges, and there's one that has has reds on it, and reds and yellows, and the last few are dark green, dark green, black Black gray. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
There's actually a couple of Rothkos over at the Phillips as well, if you are a huge are fan. The yes. Phillips oh, collection in DuPont Circle is a very nice Rothko room. What I like there yeah. is they only let a handful of people in at a time, so it's it's a very personalized experience. Yeah, it's like considered right, cool. a place where you can do some, you know, meditating or something. But. So that's our East Wing. Let's uh, let's talk briefly about the sculpture garden, and then we'll uh, we'll wrap this one up. Uh, so the sculpture garden is huge pieces of sculpture. It is outdoors, adjacent. I think I believe it's is it across the street. No, it's, uh, just west of the gallery's main building. Yeah, yes, that's right. It is across the Fourth Street. Across Fourth Street. Is that right? Seventh Street. So a couple of highlights here. Klaus Oldenburg and Kuzje von Bruggen's typewriter eraser scale X. <laughs> you knew I was going to pick this one. It's a giant, colorful, circular eraser, almost 20 feet tall. If you're an art critic, it's easy to point out that making small, everyday objects big is a straightforward way around not having any of your good ideas. On the other <laughs> hand, uh, <laughs> on the other hand, the tilt of the rubber wheel, the spread of the eraser's blue little fingers suggest a lightness of movement that belies its five-ton weight. I love it. Also, uh, there's one in uh, Vegas, and I believe another one in Seattle. Do you guys have uh, have any favorites? I don't know who did it, but I love the chairs. And then I love just being around the fountain. I, I know that's not the art part, but to me, that's the biggest draw in the summer. is a great time to just sit there and chill and cool off from a hot day. Put your feet in, and everybody just hangs out there. It's it's just the coolest place in the whole yeah, city. Yeah, it's, it's great for people to have grab some lunch, especially on a nice day. Oh yeah, it, it it's just it's actually also used for the ice rink during the winter. So if you, oh, I forgot about that. I'm never yeah. I'm never down there during the winter. Oh, that's uh, that's a good point. Brian, is there uh, is there anything specific you want to call out in the sculpture garden? I got a couple. Well, there is the uh, Louise Bourgeois spider. I knew you were going to take go ahead. Uh, of course, mm-hmm. <laughs> I had nightmares about this damn thing for, for like a week. It is a giant, terrifying spider. It is the kind of thing that you look at and immediately know it's supposed to be a spider, but it looks kind of like one that should appear in a cloud of blackness in a nightmare. Right, right. It is is as terrifying as you would think it would be. Oh, my God. Yeah, to the point where I I didn't like – I didn't even want to tell my kids that it was supposed to be a spider because I didn't (laughs) want them thinking about it. I'm like, I don't know. It's just a bunch of sticks or something. I I don't don't get it. Yeah, so that's the thing. It's not not uh, like an anatomically correct – Spider. It's almost like a like a Giacometti like figure, but done as a spider. So it's like all of the art and style of a Giacometti, but mm-hmm. done with done to terrify the hell out of you. It's yeah. it's disturbing. Yeah. And you can kind of stand right underneath it, so it looks like it's about to attack you. It's it's a pretty good photo op, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Uh, the artist's name is uh, Louise Bourgeois. Uh, this was 1996. She's got some other work over at the Hirshhorn, uh, which Renee mentioned. We're, when we talk about that, we will spend some time on her as an artist because there's some deeply disturbing things about her. <laughs> uh, there's a couple of other things that I really like over here. Alexander Calder has a thing called Red Horse, Cheval Rouge here. It's an abstract representation of a horse or several horses. I really like that. Did you see the stainless steel tree? Oh, yeah. It's called Graft, which I love. It is a concrete and steel, stainless steel tree that shimmers in the sunlight. The work's title is a play on, obviously, the word's definition, which includes both splicing one part of a tree on another and also of corruption. And I understand that happened once in Washington, D.C. Yeah. So, uh, so <laughs> Not anymore, thankfully. No, 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 thank God. The other thing that's here, and if you've been to Paris, you will recognize it, there's actual a real entrance to the Paris Metro from 1902 here by uh, Hector Guimard. He designed the entrances for the Paris's new subway system around the turn of the 
20th century to say that the style caught on is an understatement, uh, Art Nouveau. More than oh, yeah. 80 of the subways stations that he designed still exist, and they are protected national treasures in France. There's a couple that have been removed due to wear and tear. They have been obviously snapped up by museums. One of them is here. It is the iconic example of France's Belle Epoque aesthetic, and it's in Washington, D.C. I love it. Two other things I want to point out. David Smith's QB11, C-U-B-I-11. We say in the book, when the singularity occurs and our robotic overlords have taken over, mankind's last collective thought might be these robot bodies look familiar. And that's what what these are. (laughs) The other thing is, and I'm only calling this guy out because I love his other painting over at the Hirshhorn. It's uh, Mark DeSuero's Aurora. He's got another work that I like better over at the Hirshhorn. It's called Our Year's What? But this one, Aurora is it's good to compare both of them auroras uh, that consist of steel beams and curves that are bound to a uh, like a dense sort of central mass and all of the steel has been left unpainted to rust and the interesting thing about that is if you go look at this other work our years what it's light it's open and it's bright red so they're they both work they're both these steel beam construction things but they show how you use mass and then light or openness or void to achieve two different effects with the same material. I really like his work a lot. All right. Uh, any last uh, last words before we wrap up the National Gallery of Art and Sculpture Garden? I think we should talk about where to eat and how cool the gift shops are there. Thank you. Thank you, Renee. Go ahead. Take us out. The thing about the dining and the gift shop, they're on the lower level. Mm-hmm. And to, there's a very interesting kind of um, walkway that you can use to get between these two buildings and it's all lit up it's literally a piece of art in its own right and you get to travel through it it makes for a phenomenal picture so be sure to check it out downstairs also though you can find the espresso and gelato bar the cascade cafe Mm. in the east buildings there's the terrace cafe that's upstairs and in the west building there's a cafeteria and the little like uh, garden area that you sit in it's you know just very elegant and sort of looks like a little tea tea place in england or something but there's a lot of options, and you can really find something that you want to eat very easily there. And I do think it's good to, to do that. Take a break between your your viewing so that you oh, can yeah. relax and give your feet a rest and then get back up and go. Yeah, but, I mean, just, just to mentally process what you've seen, you know, every, every hour or so. It's nice to take a break, grab some coffee. And the gift shop has incredible cool things, like oh. uh, lots of things inspired by the art upstairs, of course. Do you have a favorite there, Lynn? I don't, um, but it's one of those things where you, know, you could be dangerous with a credit card. Oh yes, in the, uh, in the store because there's there's a ton of stuff that you could you could walk in there and say I'm going to redecorate my entire house based on what I've just seen and buy the stuff there to do it. Yeah, they have uh, lots of you know of course copies of the prints and then they have wonderful coffee table books and beautiful jewelry and scarves and um, there's always lots of information and like postcards and things if you want something little and there's lots of kids stuff too right did you see oh, that brian i have i haven't actually had my kids in the national uh, gallery yet my son like a painting <laughs> well my son is still five so oh, he's, yeah. he's too young to explain it to and i would spend the entire time going to please don't touch anything please don't yeah. touch anything well as my girls were growing up um, we always went in there and found great gifts for them and uh, really good ways of learning about art in different interactive games that they had and it's just i think you know if you have an artsy kid they are going to fall in love with the the different products that they have down there so i think you should check it out uh brian you want to wrap this one up for us 
Sure. Thank you all for listening. Uh, please do us a favor and leave us a review on iTunes, on Google Play, wherever you are listening to this, if you can review us, because things like that help other people find the podcast. We are just getting started here. We have a lot more of Washington, D.C. to talk about, and we would like more people to find us if possible. And it would also be great if you would like to read and more specifically purchase the unofficial guide to Washington, D.C. is a fantastic book and there is so much information. We would do this podcast for 10 hours if we just read out uh, everything that, that was written about about Washington, D.C. in there. So um, buy that. You can get that wherever books are sold, Amazon.com or a local store. And you know what? One best guidebook in um, 2016 by the... Uh, North Carolina journalism students, they awarded it that. Isn't that great? Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Did, yep. did we get a medal of some kind? <laughs> Do we get hats? Just, just the honor. Just the honor. <laughs> but it was pretty well, great. I hope it, more people heard about the book. It is a great book. It's, it's literally going to help you be so much more strategic when you're navigating Washington. So definitely get it before you come. Yeah. And I think one of, the, one of the things we did, we all did really well in the book was, you know, paintings move around to museums. You know, left and right, but the the way that we've explained sort of the the history of the uh, the museum and the movements and the motivation of the artists, I think that's uh, that's stays the same regardless of where the paintings are located. So definitely a useful resource for working your way through Washington D.C. All right, folks, I am Len Testa for Brian McNichols and Renee Sclerou. We will see you on the next show. Thank you for listening to the unofficial. Guides to the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. Be on the lookout for future episodes of the unofficial Guide to Podcasts. And as always, we appreciate your likes, shares, and comments. <laughs>